time for Legally Speaking. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, joins us. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks very much for having me. Now, there's so many things in the news right now and so many novel situations that we could discuss. But top of mind for everyone, I think, is whether or not there could be an early fall election. And I know you've performed an analysis on this matter. Yes, indeed. And that's really interesting on a host of levels. I mean, there's the practical level of the uh, what it would look like to try to conduct a election campaign in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, but there are also some, I think, interesting legal and constitutional issues about uh, whether the premier would, in fact, have the uh, authority to force an election to occur now. Uh, and uh, there is some reason to doubt that he would actually have the authority to do so. Um, and to understand why that is, we have to start with the or the Constitution of uh, uh, Canada, uh, and uh, sort of where power lies to do things like dissolve the legislature and call an election. Um, that uh, authority doesn't reside with the premier. That authority resides with the lieutenant, gov lieutenant governor. Um, in fact, if you read the Constitution Act, you would conclude that the lieutenant, lieutenant governor essentially runs the province. Now, uh, clearly that's not so, because the role of the lieutenant governor is uh, constrained by constitutional convention. And ordinarily, the lieutenant, uh, lieutenant governor would uh, act on the advice of the premier in matters like whether the legislature should be dissolved, whether there should be an election called. However, uh, we have a reasonably unique circumstance in British Columbia as a result of the current standing in the legislature in terms of the number of members and the fact of the pandemic that I mentioned. In terms of the uh, breakdown of the legislature at the moment, it is a tie between the Liberal Party and the BCNDP. Each have 41 seats. That leaves, of course, the Green Party now with two, two independents, the Speaker and the former uh, Mr. Weaver, the former leader of the Green Party. And there's one vacant seat, uh, which was a seat held by a Liberal member. So uh, the government currently maintains its majority uh, in the House, thanks to the support pursuant to that confidence and supply agreement, the Green Party voting with them. Yes. Um, and you, you've, uh, listeners have no doubt uh, heard the consternation between the leader, new leader of the Green Party uh, and the leader of the NDP. The NDP leader, the Premier, saying, you know, I don't necessarily feel bound by that agreement any longer, and outrage on behalf of the Green Party saying, look, we agreed to this thing uh, on the basis that uh, we would maintain confidence and not call an election until the next fixed election date. So that's where the, sort of the politics of the thing is. But uh, there is an interesting constitutional scenario if the Premier tries going to the Lieutenant Governor and saying, I want the legislature dissolved and I wish to have an election called. Now, there was a very interesting letter, open letter, written by Norm Spector that was published the other day. Yes suggesting that uh, if the premier tried that, uh, the lieutenant governor uh, would be well advised to tell him to go away and think about that in the context of uh, the current pandemic. But there's constitutional precedent for doing more than saying go away and think about that idea. Uh, and uh, the precedent comes from, from two previous circumstances and then uh, an interesting set of principles uh, that were set out called the uh, Lascelles principles. And I'll start with the two previous examples of where requests 
uh, for an election were refused. Um, the first of those was probably the most well-known in Canada. It's referred to commonly as the King-Bing Affair yes. from back in 1926. And you had a, an election where the sitting prime minister, a liberal prime minister, Mr. King, um, won uh, fewer seats than the Conservative Party. But with the support of a third party, much like what we have currently in British Columbia, called the Progressive Party, he was able to uh, maintain uh, confidence in the House. Uh, but there was a scandal uh, that arose over uh, customs and bribery and this sort of thing. And eventually, uh, Mr. King went to the gov Governor General, because this was federal, uh, and said, I want to have the, I want an election called. And the uh, Governor General said, no, <laughs> Bing, I'm not doing it. The Prime Minister then tried uh, a formal order in council, to which the Governor General said, I'm not signing that. Um, and instead, instead gave the, um, the opposition, who had a majority of seats, an opportunity to try to form government. That wasn't long-lasting, but the principle there is that, the, and it would be precedent, the Governor General or the Lieutenant Governor is not obliged in every circumstance to dissolve Parliament and call an election when asked. There's a second example, uh, which is from South Africa. That occurred in 1939. The then Prime Minister uh, tried passing a, a resolution in the, uh, their legislature to have South Africa remain neutral in the Second World War after Germany uh, invaded Poland. The, the, it did not pass. It failed, 80 to 67. Uh, and uh, he then went to the Governor General and said, well, I want an election to solve Parliament. The Governor General in South Africa said, no, I'm not doing that. There appears to be a, a viable alternative. The Prime Minister resigned, and uh, the other uh, individual took over, uh, formed government, and South Africa joined the Second World War. Uh, and following all of that, um, there was, and this is coming back to those principles I mentioned, called the Lascelles Principles. Yes. Those, in the most British of possible ways, <laughs> uh, this is what those say. They say this. Um, the sovereign, or in this case representative, can uh, refuse a request for an election if the following criteria are met. One, if the existing parliament was still vital, viable, and capable of doing its job, uh -huh. is there another possible majority? Uh -huh. The language used then would, if a general election would be, quote, detrimental to the national economy. Interesting. That one has been recast in some quarters as sort of detrimental to the public interest rather than necessarily economic interest. Interesting. And then three, if the sovereign could rely on finding another prime minister who could govern for a reasonable period with a working majority in the House of Commons. Those principles, uh, as I said, in the most British of ways, were published in the Times. They were written by the principal secretary to King George VI, and they were published on May 2nd, 1950, um, setting out um, that principle. So the principal secretary to the sovereign saying, a request for an election can be refused, and that was published in the context of a very thin uh, majority um, in the UK. And so what all of this says is, of course, everything that the, not everything, but much of what the governor general or lieutenant governor is doing um, is, not going to, is going to rely on uh, precedent and principle, right? Uh, and uh, in that regard, you can't just look to what does the Constitution Act say, because if you looked at that, it would say that, uh, you know, the entire uh, operation 
uh, of the province is run by, you know, Janet Austin, right? And yes. that's not so. She would be obliged to act in accordance with constitutional principles. But there are two examples and a statement of principles which would all potentially, in the B.C. context, allow her a decision. So if the Premier Horgan goes to her and says, I wish you to dissolve the legislature and call an election, she could choose to do that. Or um, if she was of the view uh, that there was another viable uh, you know, parliament was, or the legislature was still viable and capable of doing its job, and if they could, and if she was satisfied that calling an election would be detrimental, I think to the public interest would be a better way to phrase that, and that would be how the pandemic would be relevant to her decision. And then, if she could uh, rely upon there being another potential premier to take over, and whether that so is likely a function of whether the Liberal Party. Uh, and the Green Party under the new leader uh, were uh, in a position to offer something like uh, the confidence and supply agreement that was put before Lieutenant Governor when Premier Horgan was permitted to become uh, the Premier. And so that last part of that puzzle would be the third part of the test set out in uh, those uh, principles because one of the key uh, obligations of a lieutenant governor is to ensure that there always is a government uh, in place. Yes. And so there, um, all of that, I think the takeaway would be the uh, Premier Horgan doesn't have an unfettered right to demand a- an election at this point. Uh, and uh, with the uh, tie between the Liberals and the NDP, with the Greens holding the, the balance, the genuine balance of power there, if it was made clear to the lieutenant governor that there was another viable coalition uh, available, uh, the uh, choice could be to allow uh, somebody else uh, to form government rather than calling an election, even if the current premier uh, is asking for one. So I think that's important to know. Uh, It's uh, not simply a decision uh, for the premier. Um, and the authority of the lieutenant governor, based on that precedent, would appear to go even further uh, than uh, what uh, Mr. Spector was uh, advising uh, her to do, which would be to tell him to go away and think about that carefully uh, if you try to call an election in the middle of a pandemic. Now, as a matter of practicability, though, one must wonder what could be done if an election was called inappropriately. Could we? Could somebody go to court and say, no, actually, the legislature isn't dissolved? Like, I, I'm not aware of any precedent involving that either. No, it wouldn't be a matter for the courts. This would be a decision which would be up to the lieutenant governor. Okay. Um, it's for her to decide this, right? Uh, her role uh, includes ensuring that there is a government in place, uh, but uh, in the particular scenario that exists in British Columbia, where you have a minority uh, government being supported by another party, um, if the premier shows up and says, I want the legislature dissolved and I want an election, just like uh, the uh, what occurred in South Africa uh, and uh, for uh, Mr. King when he was prime minister here, um, they don't have the premier or prime minister does not have uh, a uh, unfettered uh, right to demand an election he can make a request for one which in ordinary times would be uh, uh, accepted by the lieutenant governor or governor general in case of the uh, federal government that would be ordinarily what would be so but 
there is there are two examples of where that advice was not accepted and that statement of principles setting out in what circumstances uh, the sovereign or the sovereign's representative lieutenant governor may refuse the advice not call an election despite the uh, request for one by the current uh, premier or prime minister um, and could instead, if there was another uh, viable uh, alternative, uh, and if Parliament or the legislature was still capable of doing uh, its business with uh, an alternative, uh, you could have uh, the lieutenant governor turn to somebody else uh, and say, you form government, uh, rather than calling an election in the middle of a pandemic. So the point is simply, it's not an unfettered right to call an election, it's simply a request, uh, and that would be given very careful consideration by the lieutenant governor. Usually that would be, advice would be followed, but with a minority government in the middle of a pandemic, with those two previous examples and this statement of principles, you might get uh, a different decision if there was another uh, viable uh, alternative that could uh, form a uh, majority and get support in the legislature. That last part would depend upon uh, what the view was, I think, frankly, of the Green Party and the independents, right? Yes. What is their view? Are they prepared to make some agreement uh, with the uh, Liberal Party to form a uh, uh, majority? If they were, and that was communicated to the Lieutenant Governor, that would need to be considered uh, by her when she was making a decision about whether to uh, call an election in a pandemic, or instead, um, there's clear uh, precedent for her saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I am instead uh, going to uh, ask somebody else uh, to form government. All right, let's take our break. Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, continues with Legally Speaking right after this. All right, back to Legally Speaking. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, family law often the most difficult, I would suspect, for uh, many folks to deal with because the stakes can be so high. And also airing one's private uh, business in a in a necessarily public setting such as a courtroom itself can be uh, somewhat embarrassing. I would imagine all of those potential outcomes come to mind with respect to this next story. Yes, indeed. And, and I must say uh, this would be, uh, uh, there's uh, some relief, I think, given to the people involved here as the uh, judge was uh, merciful enough to use uh, only initials. So, Which is, which uh, is very wise in my view. Yes. So... This is a rare uh, kind of family law application. Of course, there are lots of divorces going on, causing lots of rancor. Uh, but this was a decision involving an application for an annulment of a marriage, um, which is very rare these days. And uh, this was a couple. They were married in uh, August of 2018. Um, and the uh, basis for the application for the annulment of a marriage, and the annulment would essentially be saying this marriage never happened, not that it happened and we're now going to give you a divorce, was based on a claim by the uh, would-be wife that uh, her uh, husband uh, was unable to, despite many efforts over many, many weeks and months, to consummate the marriage on the basis of alleged impotence. Uh, and indeed, um, if you can prove uh, that uh, a person, uh, that a marriage was not consummated, uh, you can obtain an annulment. Uh, the standard for that has evolved over the years. In fact, uh, quite a while ago, back prior to 1857, it was a, uh, you had to go to an ecclesiastical court in order to get an annulment. Common law courts have taken over since then. 
Um, and uh, the as well, there's been a slight relaxation of what used to be a very high threshold to prove uh, a failure to consummate the marriage. Um, some of the cases from the 1930s uh, in Canada uh, found that you could only get an annulment if you could establish that the inability to consummate the marriage was permanent and would not be and could not be cured or terminated at any point. If you couldn't get to that level, the marriage wouldn't be annulled. Uh, we have relaxed that somewhat, um, but you still have a, a burden of proving uh, that the marriage was not consummated. Um, and so this, in this case, there was actually the husband uh, was opposed to the application for the annulment. Um, and uh, he had uh, instead suggested that while they had tried many times to consummate the marriage unsuccessfully, uh, he claimed then eventually that uh, his wife refused to continue trying unless he uh, entered into some sort of a marriage agreement um, and I think sought medical treatment. <laughs> that evidence was rejected ultimately by the judge, uh, and instead the judge accepted the evidence of the wife uh, that despite many attempts, they simply weren't able to consummate the marriage. Uh, and uh, some of the language used is talking about uh, the... Uh, ability to consummate the marriage being an implied term of the contract of marriage. <laughs> hmm. uh, and so ultimately here, the judge granted the application uh, for the annulment, um, and despite other evidence from the husband, including evidence from him that he now had a new girlfriend, these couple had separated, and they didn't have any trouble uh, uh, in that regard on a regular basis. But uh, nonetheless, given the standard the judge applied in a more modern uh, context, that he was incapable of consummating the marriage with his wife, um, that was sufficient to uh, found the annulment. The annulment was granted, but to add some salt to the wound, in addition to the annulment, the judge ordered costs against the husband. <laughs> so wow. well, no doubt that's going to be an unpleasant check to be uh, writing out, uh, paying the costs of your uh, unsuccessfully defended application to avoid a, an annulment uh, on this basis. So. I, I, ah, I'm just reeling that this is possible in the year 2020 that all of this is, is legal, but I suppose <laughs> the law is the law. That's it. We, uh, you know, it, it doesn't expire. <laughs> <laughs> as much as some may wish that it did. Um, uh, so we've got uh, three and a half minutes left. I know we have one more story. Falsely claiming to be a common law partner attempting to inherit a house. Yeah, I think this would be the opposite of the last case, yeah. right, in some respects fact pattern was a uh, man who in the 1970s left the United States to avoid the Vietnam draft, moved to Canada, leaving behind uh, an infant son who he had almost no contact with and paid no child support for. The man that moved to Canada passed away, um, and uh, a woman whom he had been uh, dating and who had moved into his waterfront home uh, made an application uh, to administer the estate on the basis that she was his common-law wife. Um, and in order to do that, uh, you need to, in order to be a common-law spouse for that purpose, you must have been living uh, together for a period of two years in that way. Um, and the son eventually, I think, uh, concluded that she may not have done that. And so he brought this case claiming that uh, she wasn't, in fact, a common-law partner because she hadn't lived with his father uh, for the required period of time. And so this case involved the judge reviewing all kinds of things like phone records and where did she live and what did she fill out on medical forms and all of this. 
and ultimately the judge concluded that the woman had fibbed uh, and she well she had moved in with the uh, deceased she had not lived with him for the required two-year period of time and as a result she didn't constitute uh, a common law spouse the man died without a will um, and the net result of that um, is that uh, this woman who had claimed falsely that she had been living there for more than two years and who had in that by doing that managed to transfer the home uh, the waterfront home to her name was ordered to transfer it to the son uh, because uh, there were no other children uh, and she didn't constitute a common law partner because that time requirement wasn't met and so the net result uh, of the uh, uh, the son being able to establish that this woman was not a common law partner uh, is that the son whom this man had uh, only had sparse telephone contact with and offered no support uh, to growing up uh, inherits the house. Uh, so I guess the uh, takeaway message there would be, uh, first of all, consider getting a will. <laughs> and uh, second of all, uh, if you don't, get a, don't have a will, you, you may well precipitate these kind of uh, disputes and they can turn on uh, those facts. It's hard to, of course, know what the uh, desire of the man would have been uh, but uh, here, the son that he abandoned gets the house, and the woman who lied about uh, being his uh, spouse for that period of time has got to give it up. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defence Lawyers, legally speaking, during the second half of our second hour every Thursday on CFAX 1070. Thank you, as always, Michael. Until next week. Thank you so much. Stay safe. All right, you too. Have a great day. Bye now.